Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. That is Briscoe. I am Bradshaw. And today we're joined with a guy when I got my first big break in WWE back in December of 1995. This man walked to the ring with me. I had more fun riding the roads with Dutch Mantell. Anybody who rode roads with Dutch, from Steve Austin to Undertaker, tells you it was one of the most pleasurable experiences of their life. But Dutch is so much more than just a great storyteller. He is that. And a great booker. He is that. Drew a lot of money. Volqueros Locos down in Puerto Rico. They sold out the baseball stadium for a record that holds to this day. Drew tons of money in Nashville with a very young Randy Savage. And in Memphis with Jerry the King Lawler. And everywhere he booked, he booked money. He is joining us today. And I am so thrilled that he's here. Dutch, welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. And after that introduction, hell, I might as well go ahead and leave. I don't think I can live up to that. But uh, oh man, glad, man, glad man, I'd here. like, I'd like, I'd like throwing Dutch. You know, the, you know, you, 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 you know, we, we were so fortunate when we come up. We were approximately the same age, although I'm, I'm John Sam, I'm moved older than you. But anyway, uh, <laughs> we, 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 we grew up at the right time. You know, with the guys and the, the, the legends that were just getting out of the business when we were starting, like Spudding Row. He always had that saying. I'm like Coca-Cola, man. I've been everywhere. That's how yep. I compare it to you. You're like Coca-Cola. There ain't nowhere that you ain't been. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a few places, but you know, only because I didn't want to go. I remember Stu Hart <laughs> yeah. called me one time. He wanted me, he wanted me to come to Calgary. And he went, Hey, I get you. Hey, Bastion. I, I never met the guy. He's already calling me Bastard, so I must have been a <laughs> friendly guy. Hey, Bastion, yeah, you that like to get you in a Calgary and that. And I, I I said, you know, I'm not really interested in going to Calgary. I heard it's so friggin' cold. I couldn't take that cold. And then going out and staying five days a week on the road in damn below zero weather, it wasn't my idea of having fun. So I, I never made it to Calgary. Hey, Jerry, let me ask you this, Jerry. We were in Florida, and you remember Lars Anderson. Yeah. Was that his name, Lars? Lars Anderson, yes. The most yeah. boring SOB that ever stepped foot in the race. <laughs> well, <laughs> next, well I next, the next to Dale Lewis, anyway. <laughs> well, I remember I was booked with him on Tampa TV, and I noticed right when my match got close to my match, everybody crowded into that little room so they could watch this match. And I went, wait a minute. There's something fucking up here because Lars had a tendency to go out there and just beat the shit out of guys. So I went, got the ring with him and I locked up with him. And boy, he took me down hard and, you know, and then let me go. And then he took me down hard and didn't give me that elbow across the face right. here. I said, Hey, Lars, lo loosen up a little bit. Hey, fuck you, or whatever. But he kept it up. And I don't know a damn thing about amateur wrestling. But somebody told me about a Kiwi roll or something where you just roll forward. And he didn't have me hooked. I rolled forward and then took him down and embarrassed him. Oh, he was <laughs> mad as hell. And finally, I said, hey, if you're going to get this finished, you better get it right now because I'm fucking, I'm, we're going to have a big, just a fight here. And he hooked it. And he, so we went to the back after he was embarrassed. And he was madder than hell. And he got back to that little dressing room. He said, hey, you remember, blah, blah, blah. I said, hey, fuck you, Lars. You know, I said, hey, and he was sitting down. I said, now, if you want to continue to go, get up. Because I already had him, you know, marked for a punch. And fuck, you know, and then I remember you came in and said, oh, Lars, you stupid monk, you cussed him out. Fuck, <laughs> quit, ta 
quit taking advantage of these fucking guys. I said, if you want to fucking amateur wrestle, hell, let's, let's me and you go. And then you, you lay off. And I remember uh, Carl Cox took up for me. I was glad because that got me out of the hot seat. He wasn't mad at me no more because now he could be mad at you. Then he could be mad at Killer Carl and he could pick who, who he wants to whip his ass. I don't think I don't think I could have done it. But but he was he was just and that was the only time I ever had a, a real problem like that in the ring. And it was against Lars Anderson. And I remember that you came in and I always respected that you come in and jumped on his ass for him. So I, I never thanked you for it. But thank you. Well, I, I don't remember that occasion, but I remember large, large, large. I mean, you know, large, large, you know, as a, as a person, he, he, he was, a, he wasn't a bad guy, but sometimes he, he would get in a ring and uh, he was just an asshole in the ring. And one of those guys like that, you know, and, 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 and plus he was a fairly damn tough ass guy. I mean, you know, he had, had a big guy on top of, yeah, he, you know? he, he, he was a big guy. So, but I, I remember talking to you, and and, and you know, I, I remember like I, I was telling John when we had our, our production meeting. <laughs> yeah, our production meeting. <laughs> well, well, production meeting today, Dutch, you know. me, and, me and Jerry. <laughs> oh, really? I'd, I'd like to have been sitting in on that. So, <laughs> it was know, quick, I, it was about you, but you know, uh, Lars, 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 you know, I think you know, he, he tried to copy it. His uh, his full brother uh, uh, Ole a lot, you know, just being a bully in the ring and and uh, you know pushing guys and and that always upset me. I remember you you were you were here. I hear being Florida. Remember those matches that he had with that poor Pedro Morales in in Miami, where they started out a thirty minute match, then they went a, a forty five minute match, then they went a sixty minute match, then they went a ninety minute match. And Valentine actually wanted to bring them back for a two-hour match, and we'd gone from like six thousand people down to like six hundred people <laughs> in those five weeks. Why the hell you want to kill Pedro off? I mean, Pedro, you know, was Hispanic and in Miami. I mean, he was our money down there. But uh, some of the booking, you know, and that's that's it. Speaking of booking, a good 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 segue here, John, is is your booking. And John and I were talking once again, and. Uh, I always, I always thought that your your philosophy was one step ahead of, of the modern day business. You you just kept one step ahead, and everywhere you went, and and a proof of that, that you were successful is and and the results. Like uh, we we're talking San Juan. I mean, here's a little island down in the middle of the Caribbean. You know, with a, with a, with that you know they get baseball and they got soccer, but. You know, Carlos and, and and that group and different groups down there just had the magic, and they had that they had that formula where they brought you in and kind of just stepped back and let you go. And it was unprecedented for like what five, seven years. You just had you how many hours of TV? Like three hundred, two hundred and forty some odd hours of TV. No, I it was going like five was, days a week just writing TV. Yeah, it was uh, hundred and four on Saturday and hundred and four on Sunday. We had two hours on Saturday and two hours on Sunday. It was original TV, and we set records with it. I had a, I had one match, and I didn't think it would draw that well. It did on 18-1. Wow. I mean, the ratings were the same as the stage. You know, you, you base it on population, and and it was just a good show. Tell us, tell us about Karis Locos. I mean, that this is a – Amazing story. You guys sold out the baseball stadium nine weeks in a row where you're giving away yep. dollars and silver dollars. Tell us the story about the, the biggest drawing angle in Puerto Rican history. 
Well, that one was. It was me and Frankie Lane. He's dead now. You know him. You remember him, Jerry? Frankie oh, they, Lane? Uh, yeah, Frankie Lane. When I heard when I heard that uh, name today, it just brought back. I, I think what a what a good guy. What a great talent. Yeah. Well, I went to Puerto Rico and I didn't know what they were going to do with me. So the first day they told me, I mean, we showed up for the Sunday show. It was like January the sixth week, which nobody told me that January the sixth yeah. is Three Kings <laughs> holiday. And I'm thinking, why is there so much fucking people in this airport? It's the fifth of January. What's going on? Nobody told me it's a suck. It's 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 a Christmas in Puerto Rico again. Yeah, that's Christmas. their big day down there. That's their big, big but <clears throat> so I showed up. At the Sunday show at the Roberto Clemente, it was sold out like most of the holiday shows used to be sold out back in those days. And they put me, told me I was going to be with Frankie. Okay. So then we have a match and Carlos liked it. And he said, come to the office tomorrow and we're going to talk about what we're going to do. Okay. So we go to the office and Frankie, he'd already been hit in the head by Zulu, you know, and he was sort of had us like a little bit of us, it kind of scrambled him a little bit. But he looked at me, he said, Dutch, what are we going to tell him? And I went, hell, I don't know. Do you have an idea? No, no. So we can't go in there with an, without an idea. So I went in there and still didn't have an idea, but I'd heard of this, some screwed up match or deal where guys offered a thousand silver dollars to any team that could beat them. And Carlos told me, they don't have silver dollars in Puerto Rico. He said, I love that. He said, that's what we do. He said, we'll change it. It'll be a thousand silver dollars to any team you can't beat, which means we had to beat the team. So it started out and it, and it took off. It got hot. Because some of my interviews, they were kind of questionable. You couldn't do those interviews today. <laughs> I called them here. I said, it should make English, you know, uh, before you graduated, well, you have to be able to speak English. And, and I said uh, uh, that Spanish was a like a illiterate language. And I said the women are like unpaid prostitutes. And I mean, you couldn't say that now. And then I would go out on the street and people would say, Jinga to Madre, which that's how I learned. To, you, you learned the bad words first, Jinga yeah. to Madre. And I thought it was because of my great wrestling ability until I found out later, no, they just hated me because <laughs> they, they couldn't see me. And I, and I could not go out on the street. I mean, I could go out on the street. I put my glasses on and walked around. I put that cowboy hat on. Shit, three steps. they all over me. They would kill you. And, and one time it got so bad, I couldn't even leave my hotel. I was on the seventh floor of this. It wasn't a Motel 6. It was like more like along the lines of Motel 4. <laughs> you know, it was the shit was the shits. Was that the Dahlia? The Dahlia. You stay there? I know. They tried to put me up there, and I, I refused. Well, that, that was the worst place. I stayed in some bad places. That was, I stayed in Afghanistan. It was better than yeah. that. I tell you, I've stayed in jails with better amenities than that damn Dahlia. <laughs> That Condado, and, uh, I remember that Condado, uh, Condado Hotel that they used to have the American boys stay in, you know, when they'd bring us over. That that was a, that was kind of a semi dive. It was like, and yeah, and then the other hotel was like three blocks in back of that, and uh, in the middle of where you didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah, and uh, see, you, I, I can tell guys now about heat. They don't know heat. They've never seen heat. 
They don't know heat. By God, in Puerto Rico, we had this big match with Carlos, me and Frankie at Carlos and the guy we did the angle with, sold out 16,000. It was a barbed wire match, but we couldn't have barbed wire because the commission, imagine the commission stopping because it was too violent in Puerto Rico. You know, <laughs> So we thought, I swear to God, and nobody believes this, but going to the ring, we thought going to the ring, people were trying to get us. And I got in the ring and I'm standing there and looking out at that crowd. I said, Frankie, come here. He came over there and said, you see that? <laughs> you see that line of people in that aisle we just come down? Yeah. I said, in about 15 minutes, <laughs> we, we're going to be back going back through them son of bitches. And 15 minutes, when it was over, we fought our way back. That night, we, we, I, I didn't leave the convention. Uh, this is Roberto Clemente again. I didn't leave there. To, matches were over at 1230 because matches go a long time in Puerto Rico. I got out of there at 230 in the morning. And there were still about 20 people waiting on me out there. I mean, they, see, in Puerto Rico, they thought the, the space program was fake. Yeah. And, rest, and wrestling was real. Yeah, yeah you're uh, right. People just don't understand that, that white heat. John and I have talked about that so many times. And that's kind of what you work for. But those, those, those island people down there. Like you said, I mean, it was serious crap to them when we when we went to the ring. I mean, there was no bullshit. I mean, you know, I remember just you know working with the bushwhackers as as, as, as you know aggressive hill baby faces, and they loved the bushwhackers so much. I mean, the heat that we'd generate. Then we'd stand Jack and I'd watch Abdul and Carlos go out there, or Terry and Carlos, or. Are you you and Carlos and see see the the heat and feel that 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 heat where they're right on top of you and there was no John there was no five foot six foot uh, three foot wide barricades to keep those guys uh, Puerto Rico yeah. and, and they, they served alcohol there was a little rope like a little quarter inch uh, rope that you tie your boat up with wrapped around the ring to keep those Puerto Ricans away from the ring right Dutch. Oh, yeah. Carlos, one time they used to put us on fourth on the big stadium shows. And I thought that was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard in my life. So one day I asked him, I said, Carlos, why are you putting your main event on fourth? He says, well, you know, Puerto Ricans like to drink. And he said, if we save that main event to the end, they'll be so dead, staggering, ass drunk, they'll kill all of us. Yeah. <laughs> So after I saw how mad they got at the fourth match, I thought Carlos was like the, the Einstein when he came up with that idea because they were they were rough. One night I'm watching Abdullah and Carlos because every time they had a match, it was the same thing. It was blood and juice and fight. And, and they spent, if it was a 10-minute match, they spent nine minutes outside the ring. And they'd fight all around. But this particular match, when they finished, the people came out of the stands and they circled the infield. I mean, they didn't step on the sand. They were just, they, I don't know how, why they lined up that way. They started stoning Abdullah and hitting him with everything they could. Hit really, it, they were throwing actual rocks. Uh, it looked like a biblical stoning out there. And I thought, you know. what's at that baseball stadium. That's what I couldn't believe. I, 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 they, I, sold, they, they sold them in the stands. Yeah, that, that's where they came from. <laughs> I, I had a guy who was who wrestled. His name was uh, I forgot what his name was now, but he uh, he told me, "Dutch, I hope you don't hate me, but I used to sell rocks for the fans." 
He'd sell them for like five cents a piece. And he went in and he said, I'd come out with about ten or fifteen dollars. So I went, What the hell? But they were hitting Abdullah with so much stuff. I said, I need, and I wasn't gonna run out there and try to help him because they'd have tore my ass up. But there was a broken two by four laying in the dugout. And I remember I stood up and I I threw that dugout sidearm and whoop, whoop. It hit a guy just smack upside the head. And I saw the blood before he hit the ground. It scared the living shit out of me. I thought I'd killed him. Boy, I just took off back to the dressing room. I was going to go hide. But I guess he was okay, and Abdullah made it back. So it was it was really rough times down there, really. Yeah, I, I, I remember I told, I think I told John this story. I was working with Funks, and then, you know, we had a long-running program with Funks down in San Juan for, for many years. And we were coming out. It was uh, Clemente, but I uh, see Taylor reached over, and he grabbed a handful of gravel from a batting cage, you know. And Jack and I seized him, and Jack said, watch out. You know, <laughs> there's going to be trouble. So we're, we're watching the folks come toward us, and all of a sudden, Terry rears that back that left hand like he's going to throw it. And so Jack and I, he let go of him. Jack and I dug just at the right time, and it sprinkled the people in the front row. Of course, every one of them had bricks that were twice as big as Terry. <laughs> and like you said, they started stoning uh the funk before they ever got to the damn ring. I mean, it, it was one of those you just had to fight your way out that night. Hell, it's dangerous. It, it really was. Even when they had, even when they had security, it was dangerous as hell. I remember I don't one remember night security. <laughs> well, we had some. I went back. We were in uh, uh, town. They had like bleachers on both sides, but we had to go down a level of steps and then up a level. You remember that stadium? Ponce or was that Ponce? Agua Buenas, I think. Agua, Agua, Agua de So you had to go down steps, and then you, you was underneath the floor. Then you turned a left and went up some steps. But shit, now the people could just throw shit down on you. Yeah. <laughs> but I made it down and back up the steps, and I was coming back to the dressing room door, which was to my left. And somebody said, look out, and I dug just in time, and the guy threw an empty uh, wine bottle. And it missed me by this much and broke over my head. I said, shit. And Stay it, serious, it, brother. It, it, was, it was just crazy. Hey, Dutch, so, tell, tell them the, for people that are watching or listening, the numbers that you drew, especially those nine straight sellouts in the baseball stadium, how big were those crowds? That's what's always blown. Well, me. one stadium is bigger than the other, and it's like 14,000, but they were they were like standing room only. So no telling how many people was in there. I think uh, I think Clemente, I think Clemente had like sixteen, and I think Labrill yeah. had uh, had like fourteen. Yeah, and we was back and forth between those two stadiums for nine weeks. Which usually they don't do that. They usually go outside once a month. It's like a big show. You take it outside. But that uh, Clemente was sixteen thousand people, and they're loud. Puerto Rico. I mean, if you go to a wrestling show now, the people. They, I don't even think they know how to act now. But down there, they knew the story. And that's, and I don't want to get into the day's product, but I think what today's product is missing is a story. I don't even know a story. Huh. But see, those stories down there, I, I kept going. I'd keep, keep them for months and months and months. And I'd get out of one, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't kill it. I'd get out of one so I could go back to it. And about three weeks later, 
I'd go back to it. Now the people, now they just figure it's another chapter to the story. So I never, I never killed anything. You know, you hear of a blow off. Uh, let's beat this guy. Let it go. I, I, I would beat him, but I wouldn't let it go. I would keep it alive. Well, so, you had, you had, or you had a book like that too, because you, you know, you, you had, you had guys coming in like the, like Carlos and then that group, those group of bringing guys once a month for the, uh, for the big shows, you know, as dressing on there, but, you guys were the staple of it, so you you couldn't really afford to kill off one of your guys. So you just had to had to add well, something, another layer to that to that angle where it would just be laying there when you needed it. Well, there was two companies down there, and I worked for Carlos. And this is this is what happened between me and Carlos. Uh, we were doing these huge numbers, and I didn't know it at the time but they were sharing the advertising revenue with the TV station. See, the TV station would give them the free hour, but every ad they sold, you know, they'd share with Carlos half. So I wasn't being rewarded for anything. So I went to Carlos and asked him for a raise. Oh, it's like I asked him to slap his mama or something, you know, he scratched his head and he said, well, you know, we really can't afford it. Well, I knew they could afford it because they were bringing all these guys in and giving them more money than I was making. So, and I remember, do you uh, you remember uh, Victor Quinones? Oh, yes, Victor. You remember him? Yes. So, uh, he had been talking to me about jumping ship, and I wasn't really serious about it because their show was horrible. I'd watch their show, and I told him one day, I said, you know, a Viagra commercial gets more ratings than you guys get. Oh, I made him hot. I said, when you really get serious about drawing some money, let me know. So finally, after I, me and Carlos had that uh, kind of disagreement, I uh, went down to his to his apartment, which was three blocks away. And I went up and we met and Sabio was there and Miguel Perez was there. He says, what do you want? And I gave him the same deal I gave Carlos. And of course, with about another 500 on it a week. He said, great, let's do it. I said, damn, what's so hard about it? This guy wasn't drawing nothing. But he's going to give me the money. Okay, let's do it. So, and then we started out. They were doing, my, the company that I took over with Victor, I jumped ship at Christmas. I left at Christmas for Carlos, and then I come back for the other company on January the 6th. There's that date again. So uh, they were doing a 2.6. And then we was watching them every week. Then it went to a 3.2. Then it went to a 3.6. Then it went up to a 4. And Carlos was at like a 12 or 13 then. And he's dropping, dropping, dropping. I'm going up. Uh, took me about three months. And uh, we were tied. Like we jumped over from 8.2 to 8.1. But we'd come up six points. They had gone down five points. So... And then Carlos, he said he got all mad about that and said it was something was wrong with the numbers. Like I stole the numbers like Trump claimed. <laughs> but then it, they left me alone. And then the next week we went ahead of it and stayed ahead of it for the next three years. Wow. So, Does what it, it, happened to Puerto Rico? That was such a hot territory. Was it the death of Bruiser Brody or what was it that ended up no, no, no. hurting the territory? Uh, the, the death of Bruiser Brody damn sure didn't help. Believe me. But see, I didn't get down to this other. That was in 88, 1988, the death. 
And they did sporadically some good houses, but, you know, it kind of soured the people on, uh, on wrestling in Puerto Rico as it should have really, uh, see the people of Puerto Rico were believers. That's why invader got acquitted. He didn't get acquitted. He was just deemed not guilty. He wasn't innocent. And see, a lot of people don't, he didn't deny stabbing Brody. He didn't deny it, but he called it self-defense. And what, what happened to Brody was the wrestling business was one reason why they came to that verdict. Because here he comes. You know what Brody was like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's waving that big chain around. And people and the announcers were calling him crazy. Then they would go to the matches and he looked like a crazy guy. So it wasn't hard to believe that Brody went crazy in the dressing room on Invader and Invader defended himself, which, and see, you only need one person anyway to say that he's not guilty. So they, and they had a, uh, they had a trial. I think they deliberated for like 30 minutes, 45 minutes. They came back within the hour and, you know, determined that he was not guilty. And, and that was the end of it. You were so, on your way down there, right? I wasn't. I got subpoenaed. Uh, subpoenaed. I'm sorry, but I got my subpoena. I knew the verdict before I read the subpoena, because I got it on the day after the trial. So I couldn't have made it. I don't. I don't. I don't even know why I would even be called, because I didn't really see anything. I was just you, there. You had stepped, you'd stepped out as the guys do out in the dugout and looked up at, at the crowd, right? Yep. And it was it was chaos in that dressing room because he laid there 45 minutes. Wow. Be before they could get an ambulance there. And it's not necessarily that they were just slow in responding because the, it was going to be a sellout that night. You've been around and that stadium. After you don't move, just, that traffic don't move there for it, it don't for. move. And so finally, when they got it in there, Tony Atlas, I remember that they couldn't pick him up. So Tony Atlas picked up the end of it and they took him out. And then later on, I think I think he went to him with uh, with Brody to the hospital, and he came back about an hour later or maybe more, and he was saying that man's gonna die. That man's gonna die. And I said Tony, don't say that. Don't say that. You know, he said no, he's gonna die. And the police came in, but they were walking around not taking it seriously, because you can't blame them because they had seen all these crazy, crazy angles before. And they thought this was just another angle that the wrestling company did so it was it was crazy and so, not to make light of it but you know it was bloodletting and and you know the last three matches every 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 show every night down there that's so, the most bloodthirsty place i've ever been so if that i was, mean if that wasn't what ended up you know hurting the territory and killing that hot territory what what was it that caused the end of puerto rico's great run creativity they didn't have a booker I mean, you could listen. When I went in, John, I didn't. I didn't bring one guy with me. I didn't bring one talent with me. I didn't send one talent out. I ended up drawing sellouts with uh, the same talent they had. They just wasn't using it right. I mean, it wasn't. They were some. They were some people, some Americans, who refused to go, and I don't blame them. I didn't go down there for a long time. I didn't go down there, back down I there for quit, six I years. I quit going, too. 
And the only reason I went back six years because everything else was dead. I mean, WCW and WWF at the time, they had taken over everything. Unless you either work for them, you don't work for anybody. Work for some independents who didn't who didn't want to pay in those days. So I just I, I ended up going back down there. But I went down there in the in the Wild West days. It was crazy, and I, I lived lived through a murder, and lived through another thing. And so, I, and I'm done with Puerto Rico. I'll probably never go back there again. So let, let's let's move. Where, where did you move on to? I mean, uh, after that, did you did you go to uh, one of the major companies, or did you go to Memphis, or and uh, start book, booking with Jerry, or what? When when was this? After Puerto Rico. Well, Memphis was dead too. It was, I mean, you couldn't make any money there. You'd spend most of the time on the road and probably go into the, oh, I wasn't doing that. But I did go down there and I met this guy named Larry Burton. You remember him? I remember Larry, yeah. God damn. And Mr. Wheeler Dealer. <laughs> oh my God. He wanted me to book for him. I said, yeah, I'll book for him. And I give him a number. He said, okay, blah, 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 blah. And so he told me one day, he said, I want you to come down. We got to book this TV. I said, well, I can book it from here. Oh, no, you got to come to Memphis. I said, why? Well, that's just what I want. I want you to come to Memphis. I said, what difference if I book it from here or book it in Memphis? It's the same thing. And we got in a big argument. And then he started cussing me. And I started cussing him. I've never worked for somebody and cussed them out. And I've never worked for somebody and they cussed me out. We'd end up in a cussing fight the whole time. So uh, we finally, he, he took it over down there and it was a frigging mess. I lasted about after Jerry gave Jerry, Jerry, uh, Jerry Lawler gave up his end of it to, to Burton or whatever happened. Right. You know, I lasted about two weeks. I said, screw this. But I left with the universal title and they owed me money. And he called me one day, Dad, oh, he, just listening to him talk, it makes you mad. If he could say good morning to you, you'd be pissed off at him. Good morning. He's mad as hell for some reason. Or sounded that way. He said, I need to get that belt from you. I said, well, sure, Larry. You can get it any time. When could that be? I said, when you pay me. <laughs> uh, I don't know you no money. I said, the fuck you don't. Yeah, you do owe me some money. No, I don't. How much? I said, oh, about 1500 And I don't know. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And he started arguing. I said, well, listen, you either pay me the 1500 or you're not getting the belt back. It's simple. He said, I'll send the police for you. I said, Larry, you got any papers on this belt? You got any, you got a, you got a title on it like a car. You got anything that says you own it? Well, I don't need that. I said, well, I think you do. I don't know nothing about the law, but I figured you'd have to have something that showed ownership. So when I said, no, I don't give a shit away. I, and that's when I was going to Puerto Rico. I said, I'm going to Puerto Rico. I'll find you there. I said, screw you there. They can't even find the governor at the time. You can't find me there. Screw all. So I never did. He never did get the belt back. So, but I don't have the belt today. So I told him one time, he said, what happened to the belt? I said, somebody stole it. So you go figure. <laughs> You're there. You know, those, those, those collectors, when you get around those belts, they're a little damn sticky finger. They'll just pick it up and leave with it. So I couldn't help it. I don't know who got it, but 
Dutch, a common thing on our on our on this show has been belt. We had we talked about Stan Hansen, you know, and had him running over Verge belt, and we talked about Medusa dropping a WWF yep. belt and a garbage can. Now we're getting a third uh, third belt. Elbow John, we're cutting new ground here. We're dealing with a bunch of outlaws. What we're doing? <laughs> no kidding. Hey, so big, we, the big yeah, we, in Memphis. So you were at it before you went down to Puerto Rico, right? You were working with Randy Savage in, in Nashville yeah. for Jerry Jarrett. Did he go over to Memphis and work with uh, the King over there in a babyface babyface match? Right. Yep, we did. Very successful. See, what had happened was Lawler got hurt. You know, he was married to that belt. He had it for shit. 40 fucking years, but he got hurt and I ended up with a belt somehow. I forgot. So I'm doing, I'm defending it against somebody. But then Jerry Jarrett told me, he says, why don't you talk about everybody that wants to challenge you for the title, like Terry Funk and Dory Funk and the Briscoes and this and that, and you know, names they would know. So, and, but at the end, he said, throw Lawler's name in there because he was out with an injury. So the people that, you know, they knew what I'm saying. But when I said Lawler, now, they could picture me and Lawler having a match, and I heard a pop from them a little bit. So we came back, and we booked this match with me and Lawler. It was about a week buildup, and no angle, no nothing, just an interview, and we did 12,000 people. Wow. Because it was babyface versus babyface, and I wrote about it in my book, and I call it The Feud That Divided Memphis. And it did because when they got a ring, you could tell by the by the response of the crowd that it was split evenly. And I remember the first night I, I had my supporters and a lot of people, screw you, Dutch, blah, blah, blah. They just turned on me. And the Lawler had his supporters, and it was then he had his detractors, screw you, Lawler. So they actually couldn't foresee how this match was going to end. And I end up, we do some crazy Memphis finish. But and Lauder goes over, and then the first family jump on him. They're all you know bona fide heels, and the people were saying, "Help me!" Now Lauder fans, who was booing me just two minutes earlier, three minutes earlier, they were saying, "Help him, Dutch! Help him!" And I started to help him, and it's like you know, just time stops, and then I say, "Screw it, I leave." Then we come back with a a different. Uh, Equivalent, I think. I don't know what you would call it. But usually it's the challenger seeking revenge. But uh, I refused it. He wanted to match. He was a champion wanting a match with me. And I refused it because usually it's the challenger wanting to match with the champion. It was just, and I wouldn't give it to him. And we took that around along about two weeks. And then we worked an angle the second time, but like a physical confrontation. We sold it out again. And then the third, and this was the longest, shortest angle I've ever worked. It went about about two months, and we actually worked about three times. Huh. And the last one was a barbed wire, uh, barbed wire title match, and it was good. So, but there was a lot of money drawn with that angle. And then I ended up staying the babyface. He ended up staying a babyface, which is actually very hard to do. If you want it, you know, it's easy to switch somebody, but I didn't switch and and we continued onward with where we were going, wherever that you were was. In Memphis, when uh, Steve Williams came in and you changed his name to Steve Austin, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I was booking Memphis, and Dundee came up to me and said, hey, mate, you got a new guy showing up today, mate. I said, who? I don't know, some guy, <laughs> some guy from Texas. I said, well, nobody told me. I'm the booker. I said, nobody told me. Why, Jerry Jarrett is Jerry Jarrett's idea. So about 10 minutes later, in walked Steve Austin, the one we know now. And he said, hello, I'm, I'm Steve Williams, and blah, 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 and shook hands. And I said, well, have a seat and get dressed. And you're on first. And, and then Lance was standing there. He says, what are we going to call him, Dutch? I says, I said, well, we, gotta, we can't call him Steve Williams. And he said, and then Steve says, well, I don't know why in the fuck not. That's my name. I said, they're already a Steve Williams. I can't call you Steve Williams. That's the damn... I can't call you that. Well, I don't, I don't, and he didn't like it. So we already like in a dispute. He'd only been there like 10 minutes. And I finally says, well, I'm going to call you. I can't call you Steve Williams. So it went on five minutes before he went on. Lance was standing there and he says, what's his name, Dutch? I says, well, I don't know, for the doc, <laughs> for the sake of something. I, and I thought of Austin, Texas. And then he had a wrestler name. Uh, killer buddy Austin one time. So I says, uh, we'll call him Steve fucking Austin. He said, well, I don't like that name. I said, I don't give a shit. That's what you are tonight. So, <laughs> so he goes out there and he has this match. I go and watch him. And the match wasn't that good because the people didn't know him. So, but it wasn't bad. So he came back and boy, he was so proud of that match. He says, what didn't you like about it? I says, well, it'd be a lot shorter to tell you what I did like about it, which was fucking nothing. Uh, I think I heard his feelings a little bit. But I told him, I said, listen, I want to show you something. And I took him outside. I said, you see that chair right there? He said, yeah. And that's where you could pull the gate open a little bit. I said, every night till you leave, I want you to watch every match from beginning to end till you leave. And then I walked by about an hour later, and he was actually watching a match. I went, I'm damn, I can't believe you know, here's a wrestler actually doing what you ask him to do. But he told me one time, he said, <coughs> that was the reason that he would watch everybody's match before his. So he didn't do anything they would do, which was actually pretty smart. And he said he'd learned, and he actually had some pretty good guys to learn from in Memphis at the time. And so he says how he learned to how he learned the business and he, he learned it well too. His credit when he was on top, I mean, as, as red hot as anybody has been in the history of the business, he still watched every single match. Yeah. He was there at the curtain for he'd find a place where he could hide and watch the matches yeah. and watch every single match to his credit. You also got the ride with you're the best man in Undertaker's wedding, right? That was. And you got to ride with The Undertaker for a long time as well, right? So you you rode with all the guys who made up the attitude. Yeah, well, I would ride with uh, I would ride with Mark. We go up and down the road, and I tell all these bullshit stories, and he'd hear all that shit, and he'd tell me his stories because mine. I had a lot more stories than he had, but <clears throat> so. But one time, I remember we was at this little spot show. You know, Mark has a bad temper when he gets riled up. A really bad temper, and some some fan had done something to him, and he was dying to go out there and beat the shit out of this fan. And I had to scream at him, Mark, don't go out there. And Mark, Mark, I had to get loud, don't do not go out there, sit down. Because if he'd went out there, they'd have, you know, they'd have 
they'd have called the police on him and it'd been a bunch of shit for over nothing. You know, that's what you go out there for to make them mad. But if you're going to go out there and try to fight them, you, 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 you end up going to jail. One time, this is a story, and I tell this, I told Undertaker told it the last time he was in WWE when I was there. We were coming back from Louisville, Kentucky on a Tuesday night, because Louisville ran every Tuesday, and he was driving my car. <clears throat> you know, I wasn't driving. No, no. And, well, and he looked at me. you weren't driving. I rode with uh, you yeah. for a year. Yeah. Jared, he well, drove I, probably 34 miles one time <laughs> Yeehaw Junction to freaking Orlando. That was the only time you're right. I bet I drove 50,000 miles one year. He did. Well, he's a smart old veteran. He did. It was actually Lakeland to Tampa. That's what I, I drove. I said, and I, I, Jerry, I drove about 30 minutes. And I said, damn, John, I'm just, I can't stay awake. I said, God damn it. Yeah, never. <laughs> hey, Jerry, he's yeah. driving like 20 miles under the speed limit on purpose. So he never has to drive again. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. And John kept saying, speed, speed up, speed up. I said, I don't know. I don't want to get a ticket now. He said, you're not going like- to get a ticket at you're not going to get a ticket at 40 or maybe driving yeah. too slow. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, Danny Hodge, when I was a rookie, I used to ride with Danny. Danny would be on the road. We'd, we'd be out leaving Little Rock, going back to Tulsa, 310 miles. We'd get outside of Little Rock and get dark as hell. <laughs> you okay, champ? Yeah, I'm okay. Then all of a sudden, you know, you'd be sipping on your beer. All of a sudden, Danny would, like, hit the shoulder and then jerk, jerk it back off. Yeah. Danny, oh, all right, I'm, I'm all right, kid. I'm all right. Then you go along about two minutes from Danny do the same thing. Man, hey, Danny, you want me to drive? Yeah, would you buy it? I'm just eating myself. They sat over there drinking bullshit all night. Yeah, I should have tried that, but I didn't try that on you, John. Hey, but anyway, back to my story. Me and Taker were coming back from Louisville one night, and we had, you know, Action Jackson? Yeah. Anybody know him? Okay, he was in the back seat, big old boy. Well, it was part of the and we black, all had to, part of the blackbirds. Yeah. They all shoot the free birds with Iceman King Parsons. And we all had those damn do rags on, and the dome light was on in the car. And we got pulled over. And Mark looked in his mirror. I said, "What's the matter?" He said, "It's caught behind me." I said, "Don't worry about it. We're only two miles from the Tennessee line. Only had two miles of Kentucky left." I said, "He'll have to. He can't stop us then." Well, he stopped us right at the last exit. We pulled over, and then the big flashlight. The searchlight come on. Then I heard him say, drive the vehicle, take the keys out of the condition, drop them on the pavement, and enter with your hands in the air. And I went, damn, that's not like any stop I've ever seen. And I looked back a little bit. The cop comes up, and he handcuffs Mark. And I went. Then he said to me, driver on the passenger side, which was me. You know, exit with your hands in the air, facing the front of the vehicle. And I, I started to say something like, who, me? He just said, yeah, you, you ignorant bastard. Get out. And I got out. They handcuffed me. But <clears throat> in the meantime, more cars had come. Now there's like four cops there. And I said, hey, officer, listen, I'm Dutch Mentel. This is uh, Master Payne. He said, shut the fuck up. We know who you are. We don't give a shit. Okay. I guess it wasn't much for chit chat. Then I saw a car come up the, you know, the off ramp. He come up the off ramp and parked in the grass down below us. And he got out with a shotgun and I heard him uh, chamber around. I went, what the hell? Now this is getting serious. 
because now we had Action Jackson getting out of the car, and he's like 350 pounds. We all had those do-rags on, looked like bikers. So they got him out, and then they started searching the car. They went through it. He said, search the car, and they went through it, through it, through it, and turned everything upside down. Didn't find nothing. And he said, we don't find anything, and they went through it again. But what they were looking for was a gun because somebody had turned us in because we had a gun and we were brandishing. You like that word brandishing at people. It couldn't be, he couldn't say like you were showing it all. We were brandishing it, which made us like violent, but they didn't find anything. They didn't find nothing. They didn't even find any beer. One reason because we didn't have, we didn't have no money to buy beer. (laughs) Territory was in bad shape. Didn't find a joint. Didn't find any pills. Didn't find nothing. It was a, so he come back and he that. said, and I asked him, Did I said, what happened? you were wrestling? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but boy, lucky that we had nothing. Because even if we'd had a little joint, we'd went to jail. If we'd had a beer, we went to jail. Because they had expended like six or eight officers for that stop. And they couldn't leave it without nothing unless they just had to. Now he had to go back. So if you had eight officers out there and you didn't get nothing, they didn't find anything. But what I found out later was somebody was running some drugs through there and they happened to see us and they called the attention on us. So they would get stopped. While we were stopped, they stood right by. Who it is, I have no idea. And then when we left, now they're all friendly. Now they're all wrestling fans. Now they want us to sign stuff. And somebody said, did you sign it? I said, yeah, I signed every damn thing they had. I'm just glad to get the hell out of there. So That was the rest of the boys that called you in. <laughs> oh, yeah, probably was. I, hey, don't, was. I don't think we didn't have cell phones then. But somebody would have to call it in on a CB. You were with a, a lot of famous people. But I, I would have to say that you'd have to agree that when Tom Pritchard Got behind the wheel of a car. He was the worst driver in the history of the freaking automobile. I've never seen anybody worse than I love Tom. Tom's a good man, but he rolled with me and you. We let him drive one time up in uh, Pennsylvania near Allentown or somewhere up there. Jerry, it was a fog so bad you couldn't see the front of the car. And no. driving 80 miles an hour. And I said, I'm thinking, I can't see nothing. I'm glad Tom can see because I'm, I, I, if I was driving, I'd be going 20. Tom can't see anything either. You ever see those glasses he wears? Well, finally, Tom looks over at me and says, you know, I can't see a thing. I said, why are you driving eight? No, no shit. Really? And he drove us off the damn road, hits a ditch, and blows out the front tire. Now we got to get back on the highway and change the tire. We're scared we're going to get hit by a truck, fog everywhere. It was the biggest disaster. We fired that man from ever getting behind the wheel again. And then we had trouble. Changing the tire. Yeah. We couldn't figure out the rim. We <laughs> get the rim off. So Jerry, and John, and John, and John said, get out of the way. And he pulled the rim off. He said, damn. So he changed the tire. So, so Jerry, I got the little tape <laughs> jack and I've jacked up the car. And Tom was the first one on the on the wheel. He goes, and the lug nuts are stripped. We're screwed. Then uh-huh. Dutch gets up there. He goes, Yep, he's right. And now they're both sitting on the on the side of the <laughs> And I'm sitting there in a story jack, and I finally get it up, and I look at the wheel, and I look at them, and I said, lug nuts are stripped? They said, yeah. I said, you know, if you took the hubcap off, <laughs> you could get the lug nuts. 
Well, hell, they look like lug nuts to me. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't turning or anything. <laughs> so Tom gets, I think it, Tom gets in the back and goes to sleep. Dutch is riding beside me. Tom's been fired for driving forever. And Dutch leans over about halfway. We get on out of Philadelphia. He goes, hey, listen, you don't have to tell anybody about those lug nuts, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, I think, think, I think the print. The first I one think he called. Drive, was, I think that driving runs into the Pritchard family because Bruce is a horrible driver too. I think they took driving lessons from it. Yeah, well, John didn't tell anybody, but it, it was in next week's Observer. He called Melcher and I'm still telling him. Hey, Dutch, before we go, and I uh, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us, uh, you also named Abyss. I always thought that was a great story. Abyss. Now I, I see him a lot at WWE. I never got to work with him. Terrific guy, super nice guy, but you named him. Um, I did. Well, I went to work the first TNA pay-per-view, and I was in Puerto Rico, and it was in Nashville. I was was living in Nashville, so I flew up because I got a chance to go home. And that's the first time I – well, I'd met him on some independent shows before, but he was there, and he was going as Prince Justice. Okay. So – and I told him, I said, hey, I'm going to Puerto Rico because I've watched him. He's, he was good. So I said, I'm going to Puerto Rico. If you want to want to make a move, give me a call. Okay. He said, well, I'll be okay here. They're going to use me pretty good. And I went back to Puerto Rico. The next week he called me. Hmm. I says, I thought they were going to use you pretty good. Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> but maybe I'm not on this pay-per-view and on the next one. I don't know. He says, can you use me? And I'm just messing with him because I could. I said, oh, man, if you'd have called me 10 minutes earlier, I'd have spilled the spot. Oh, no, man, you didn't do that. I said, yeah, sure did. I wish you'd have called me earlier. But I just found out. I give him something to worry about. I said, listen, give me a day or two. Let me see if I can move something around. And I'll call you back. Okay. Well, he called me two or three times. I just wouldn't answer the phone. So finally, I do call him back because I'm just kidding him anyway. I said, well, I got a spot for you. Oh, man, great, great, great. And I told him the deal. You know, we give him a little bit of a guarantee, which he could be okay. He could stay with me or stay with the guys. And I says, uh, I made a few changes to your to your gimmick. What do you mean? <laughs> you ever been around him much? Yes, not, not uh, a lot. I've been around some after, after pay-per-views. Now, what do you mean? I says, well, I've changed your name. Really? To to what? I said, Abyss. And he went, silence. He didn't know what to think. Abyss? He says, what about Prince Justice? I says, well, you know, Prince Justice, I don't think it would mean much here in Puerto Rico, the name, you know, the Spanish translation or whatever. And he says, but what am I going to tell my fans? I said, <laughs> what, all seven of them? <laughs> and then I told him, I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you, I'm going to put a mask on you. And I just want it to go from here to here. You know, I actually had it like a, a ski mask. He just cuts the top out and uses it. And he, uh, he showed up the first day. And I got him over just like that because it's one of those big sellouts. I put him in a match that meant something, and he beat up a, a guy they cared for, and the summit got over quick. 
So, well, to me, to me, Dutch, he was he was one of one of your characters that really reflected you. I thought he a lot of his his, his promo work and a lot of his work. I mean, it it had a great reflection of you on it. Well, thank you because he 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 really worked his ass off, and he got to where he is now through hard work. I remember one time I got him up at eleven thirty at night because I'd I'd been drinking a little bit and I had. <laughs> I had him build a fire. You're not supposed to build fires in San Juan. We built a fire, and I got my camera out. He put his mask on, and I had him lean into the fire. And he said, this is hot. I said, well, yeah, it's supposed to be hot, God damn it. But, but he did it, and he, and he got over. So, And uh, he probably stayed He probably stayed eight months, nine months, which is a long time in Puerto Rico because yes. what happens to you is you get island fever. And you can only go around that island so many times. You can drive around it in about two hours. So, and he, he got that, he got homesick. So I said, then I sent him to, I did send him to TNA and it took off there. So. Judge, why was it that you never became a major booker, writer for one of the big uh, companies for a long period of time? You're so successful everywhere you were. Well, one reason is, it's the politics involved. I didn't want to deal with it. I could have done it, but I didn't want to deal with it. See those riders getting up at five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock going here and then, you know, meeting with Vince all the time or anybody. <laughs> I hate committees anyway. Even when I was in the committee in TNA, it's just, you know, you've heard the old story, you can, you know, saying that you can start an idea at the top of the table and whisper it on down around the table, say five or six guys, it can get back to the guy who came up with it and it'd be totally different. Sometimes the damn personality had even changed. So if you got to depend on a, if you got to depend on the committee to agree with what you want to do. See, that's what I didn't have in Puerto Rico. If I had the idea, I did it. See, I would go out on the beach and I'd get a bottle of, you know, Malibu rum and my senior Malibu, is one hell of a booker. I'd put Senor Malibu Amen. there. And then I'd book it, you know, and, and then I'd go back to the room and I, I'd, I'd write it down. That's how I wrote my first book on the beach in Puerto Rico. I wrote it in five weeks. <laughs> so, But I had been writing stories anyway. I said, all I'm going to do is just transfer these stories to the book. So I actually wrote two books, which is about 700 pages in about in the span of one year. That's a lot of writing, really. But if you're telling something that you just want to tell the story, if you can write, you just write the story. And I followed the WWE formula. You started at the top of the show, and you run those little vignettes. I'd run about four. And about the second one, they say, oh, now we got it. That's an episode. Then they'd wait to the third one. Then we go to the fourth one. <clears throat> and I take them all the way through the show. One, one way, when I had a big show, I had this guy. And he was tremendous with video. And this is when you could still use commercial music. We would end the shows, I mean, the TV shows for the big show that night in one of the big stadiums. He would end it with a video package that sometimes would go seven minutes. But he would list everything we have done during that whole cycle. And it was a show unto itself. And sometimes you could see the ratings would pick up on that that last 10 minutes of the show. So 
Well, and I ended up getting him a job. I, I getting him a job in TNA, and I went. I, I think he would fit in with uh, WWE very, very well. Well, Dustin, what you say, I've been uh, excited about having you on. Uh, sent you a, <laughs> sent you a bunch of texts. I finally got connected with you, and uh, it's been a thrill, Dust. Just as you always have been. I, you know, when you came back and were working with Alberto and working with Jack and and Cesaro, I loved every second of it. Just like I loved the first run I had with you. You've always been such a good, fun, entertaining guy and a good guy, Dutch. So thank you very much. I appreciate much. that. Thank you. John, let me, let me ask you a question. What is that statue behind you? What is that? <laughs> what, is that? what is that? What is that? It's from uh, China, from Xi'an, China. Oh, I see. And uh, I bought it over there in the mid-90s. I went to Xi'an and visited the Terracotta Warriors, and that's a replica of the main general of the archaeological find. I bought it for 750 bucks and – Took me about nine months to get it shipped to me, and really, they're in Texas. It's about six and a half foot tall, about four hundred pounds. Really, that, well, that's his. That's his story, Dutch. I think it's his wife, and when John dies, she's going. It's a tomb. She's going to suffer him in that damn thing, and we'll never know it. <laughs> hey, you need to get it. You need to get a best on here. I'd love to. Absolutely, that's a, actually that's a great idea. I'm going to see him next week. I, I'd love to get him on. That'd be a lot of fun, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, he he's a wonderful, interesting guy too. He is he's very intelligent, and I I think he'd add a lot to it. And I and he he played that character best. Like I said, uh, Dutch, that's the closest uh, representation I think to your genius as, as anything you did, any of those guys you created. Oh, I had a I had a great I had a great time with him. I'd get him in the car at night. I says. He'd say, "What'd I do?" I said, "Nothing. Oh, I was a shit." So I just, uh, oh, and he and he acts like this. Oh man, really, really? I said, "No, I'm kidding you." Please, <laughs> that's how you learn. He's I a learned, warrior, isn't he? 